This morning uh, is Father's Day, that one day out of 365 days that we set aside uh, to recognize the unique role and special contributions that fathers make to the family. It's akin to Mother's Day, but we usually celebrate Father's Day in a little bit different fashion than Mother's Day. You see, on Mother's Day, Dad grabs up the kids and Mom, and they go out in the evening or afternoon for a special meal or dessert, and Dad picks up the tab. But then on Father's Day, (laughs) on Father's Day, Mom is uh, there, and they grab up the kids, and they grab up Dad, and they go out for a special meal or special dessert for Dad, and Dad picks up the tab. <laughs> the, uh, I was, <clears throat> had read this week that the Illinois Bell Telephone Company uh, had reported one time that the volume of long-distance calls made on Father's Day is growing faster than the number on Mother's Day. The company apologized for the delay in compiling these statistics, but explained that the extra billing of calls by operator billing of calls to fathers slowed things down, as most of those calls were collect calls uh, on Father's Day. I know I was uh, guilty of that numerous times. You see, mothers are honored uh, for what they do to help us. We fathers are praised for what we have. The money, car keys, credit cards, uh, those types of things. As a matter of fact, I read this week that the flower for Father's Day is the dandelion. (laughs) Why, I don't know, but I know that it's not a rose, and that must uh, tell us something about that. I'm sure that uh, most of you fathers out there, like myself, can remember your very first Father's Day. Mine was almost six years ago to the day. Uh, Rebecca, our oldest daughter, was born June 16th, uh, six years ago when we were living in Dallas, Texas. And I can remember that Saturday uh, very well as Nancy uh, went into the hospital very early with labor pains and I, as her coach, was right there with my cap, clipboard, and whistle, ready to go. Went through the whole day, and it wasn't until late in the afternoon uh, that Rebecca was born. And I thought, uh, for honoring me for such outstanding uh, help and coaching her through this great ordeal, that Father's Day was a good way to go about it. After all, I'd been involved in the conception. I'd endured nine months of pregnancy. I had almost single-handedly brought forth this successful birth. So I thought, well, you know, since Coach of the Year wasn't available for me, then Father's Day was a fitting reward for all the uh, special effort that I had put forth. But seriously, when Nancy and I became parents on that Saturday, we were both filled with awe and amazement and overwhelmed with a sense of responsibility uh, that we had as parents. And we also were reflecting about the goodness of God towards us, that he was involved in the knitting, forming together of Rebecca in the womb, and that now here was our daughter with ten fingers, ten toes, two eyes, two ears, a nose, a mouth, and a full head of hair. We always order the deluxe model hair <laughs> with our kids. And uh, yet there was this precious package, this gift that God had given to us. And we were so thankful and praising of God. And I went away that day uh, just thanking God as my Father in Heaven 
for what he had done. And I really believe that that's what God would have wanted me and wants us to do, is to thank him not just as our God, but to see him also as our Father. And yet that's so hard for us to do because of the transcendent nature of God. His greatness, it's so far beyond us that we sometimes have a hard time bringing him into focus as our Father. And so that's what I'd like for us to do this morning, is to take this Father's Day morning and to see if we can't bring God as our Father a little bit closer uh, into focus. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you will, to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. And this is a section of Scripture in which we're at the end of King David's life. If you remember King David, he wanted to build a temple for God. And Nathan the prophet said, yes, David, go ahead and build it. And then God spoke to Nathan and said, no, Nathan, go back to David and tell him that's not what I have in mind for him. He's a man of war, a man of bloodshed, but his son Solomon, who will be a man of peace, he will build my temple. So David went, Nathan went back to David and said, no, it's not for you to build the temple, but it will be for your son Solomon. David accepted that, and then he said, I can help out by providing all the materials that my son will need to build the temple. And so the first five verses here talk about David's concern in building the temple and the gifts that he personally provided for that uh, temple structure. And then verses 6 through 9 talk about the response of the populace and the things that they gave to help bring about uh, the building of the temple. And then verses 10 through 19 is David's prayer in response to the abundant gifts that came in that God had provided through the people. And we just want to look at the first four verses uh, of this prayer this morning. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of the assembly, and David said, Blessed art thou, O Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, thine is the dominion, O Lord, and thou dost exalt thyself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from thee, and thou dost rule over all, and in thy hand is power and might." And it lies in thy hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. What comes out to us immediately is we see the sense of worship and praise that David has with respect to God. His name is mentioned several times in here as God, uh, Lord God. And so, uh, David, who was struggling against God, as some of us I want to do, no. Uh, David was um, seeing that God is to be our focal point. That he is the one by which we uh, respond to. And he <clears throat> starts out with a blessing. And you say, well, that's odd. Now, David is blessing God. Shouldn't it be God who is the one who blesses us? Isn't that the way it works, that God is the one who blesses man? And that's true, yet this word barak is used also in reference to God 
when he can receive a formalized expression of praise or thanks from God for all that God has done out of the abundance of his life, what God has done for mankind or for that particular person. And yet it's not uh, the blessing that jumps out for me. Several months ago when I was reading this, what stood out for me in this passage was the term father. It's only mentioned once, and in contrast, the many times that Lord or God is mentioned, and it stuck out to me that David wanted the people to see God as a father. David wanted to close that gap between God and his greatness and man and his smallness, and he wanted to bring the two together, something that we struggle so hard to do. And David wanted to do that for the assembly at this particular time. And part of the reason is that for the nation of Israel, the name of their God is Yahweh or Jehovah. That's almost an unreachable, untouchable name. Indeed, there was a period in history at which those who read the scriptures would not speak the name of God. It was written in the scriptures But they spoke the word Adonai. They replaced that word Adonai, which meant my master, because they had such great reverence for this term. And yet the term father here, Ab, is just the common everyday term that they would use for father. It's not a special term referring to God, but just the family term. See, the father was the one who was the provider, the protector, and as such, he would receive respect and obedience. From the family members. And in the same way, God is our provider, our protector. And we should be responding to God with respect and obedience in the same way. Now, David continues to talk about who God is and what he has done. Who is this person that's described as our father? Well, as we look at verse 11, we see several terms which describe God. And these are not exhaustive. This is not an exhaustive list of the characteristics of God, but a representation. And I think that it's important that they seem to be expressed in a superlative sense. If we note the definite article, the, before these terms. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness, and the power, and the glory, and the victory, and the majesty. And as we look at those words, we say, yeah, I know what those words are. I read them in Scripture all the time. But if we can get past the religious commonality of these terms and get a picture of what they are describing for us, I think we may be able to understand God a little bit better this morning in his character. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness. The greatness of God is referring to his magnanimity. His immensity. When I think of the universe and its greatness, this is somewhat of the description that it's with respect to size and importance that we're talking about God here. Last night I went outside after the sun went down. I looked into the heavens. And the stars that I see up there are light years away from us. They are light years away from each other. We have yet, with our scientific instruments, to be able to find the limit to our universe. We don't know where it ends. The galaxies that are involved. That is greatness. And yet our God is the creator of that. Our God 
is the great one. He is greater than that universe. And so this term is describing the greatness of God in that respect. And the power. Here the term for power is the idea of royal power, the kind of power that a monarch has. When we think back to the kings of Israel, to King David, think of uh, the Middle Ages and the kings of Europe, the kings and queens of England and Spain, that they were monarchs with absolute authority. Their word was the final word. And that's what's talked about here, God's power. He is the ultimate monarch. He is the benevolent dictator for us. His word is the final authority. Then the glory. Glory is such a hard term to grab a hold of in Scripture because it means so many different things. And here the idea of glory is one of God's beauty. It's the perfect combination of grace and strength. And the picture I have of that is the horse from the movie The Black Stallion. And I've always appreciated uh, God and the way that he has brought nature together, especially uh, with some of the animals. And in their movement, and you seem to sense the grace and strength that come together. And in that horse, as it ran, and especially in slow motion, you can picture it's just grace and strength in action. And that's beautiful for us. And I think part of the reason that we would hide our eyes to see God is because of his great beauty. We couldn't comprehend it would be so overwhelming to us. And the victory. This is God's preeminence. That uh, his ultimate purposes will be vindicated. His victory over sin. And we see this with respect to the person of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. That our confidence to live life in the face of the foes that confront us is the assurance of what God has done for us in our relationship with Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 5.14 says that death is swallowed up in victory. That we have victory over death. Romans 8.31 says that if God is for us, who can be against us? Literally, who can stand up against us? And God is saying, no one can stand up against you when I am for you. I will give you the victory. And then in 1 John 5. John says, our faith is the victory that overcomes the world, that overcomes the anger and the hate and the philosophy of selfishness that pervades our society and inhabits our lives. But God says, no, our, your faith is the victory that will overcome that. And then the majesty of God. This is his splendor. The radiance of God in his creation. And all I have to do is think of the Satus as they rise up above Stanley and the majesty that they have. Or Crater Lake, if you've ever been to it or flown over it. Or if you've gone to the Pacific coast and noticed its rugged outline or the power of the waves crashing into the shore. Or perhaps you've noticed the flowers in a field, the way that God has laid them out. Or the birth of a new colt or of a newborn child. See, this is God's majesty. We are held in awe and wonder. We cannot comprehend how it takes place. It's beyond us. And David says that these things 
lead to the fact that God indeed is over everything in the heavens and the earth. That God truly is, His is the dominion, His is the kingdom. He is the one who exalts Himself as head over all of us. And this gives us a brief picture, a little bit of a taste, as to who God is as our Father. And it's important for us to remember that God in His greatness, with all these descriptive terms here, is still our Father. He wants to be with us. He wants to live in us. Then David moves on to talk about what it is that God does. In verse 12, both riches and honor come from thee. First of all, we see that God is a provider of something that we want. Riches, that's simply material wealth, property, treasure. Honor here is not uh, honor with respect to importance within society. It's a reflection of the idea of the quality of life that reflects God's glory. The characters of life that would be godliness or a moral righteousness. And that these two things, David says, come from God. And that he rules over all, and that in his hand is power and might. And in, when it talks, the scriptures talk about God's hand, it's a reference to God's activity in our lives. It's symbolic of God working in our lives, and David recognizes that power and might originate and exist with God. And the power here is not the same term, the same word for power that's used previously. The power that's here is more the power of force, the ability to develop, to create something, to develop the potential of something. And I think of uh, my fruit trees. And as I go out into my yard and look up into my fruit trees, and an apple tree, and a peach tree, and a pear tree, and I keep looking up there, and I where's the fruit? Come on, where is it? It's so small when it starts out in the spring. And yet as the season goes along, it grows and develops and becomes a full pear, or a full peach, or a full apple. See, that little bud is full of potential to develop, and it's God who has the power to develop that. Or some of you who may be involved in photography know that if you take the negative, which is black from our point of view, from what we can see, and we put it into the canister, we mix the right chemicals, and bring it together, and out of that blackness comes a full picture. It is developed, brought into view. And that's the power that God has in our lives, to develop, to create to bring into full potential. And the might here is really his authority to exercise that power, to make that decision. Up at Lucky Peak, there's a large rooster tail that comes out of the bottom of the dam. And there is power, there is force. But yet it's the core of engineers who determine whether that power will increase or decrease, whether they will open the gate or close the gate. And in the same way, it's God who determines whether his power will increase or decrease or how that power will be used. It's all within his authority. And in, in it, in God, in thy hand, lies the ability to make great 
and to strengthen everyone. The idea here of making great is one to grow up, to bring to maturity, not necessarily to make as a great person amongst other people, but to make the kind of person that God would want us to be. And then to strengthen has the idea of being involved in combat, involved in a battle. And God is there to strengthen your knees when they buckle, when they're weak. He's there to encourage you, is what really is going on here, or to give you courage to face life, to give you help in whatever way you need help. So it's God who is the source of all these things. And as we were going through this passage, I was sharing it this week with some of uh, the other guys on staff. Chris Rudell made the observation that it's these very things that we so desperately want as fathers that distract us from being fathers. We want riches and honor and power and greatness and to be strengthened. And when we focus in on achieving those things, sometimes we lose focus of pursuing God. We lose focus of being a father. That the things that we want squeeze out the things that we really need to do. And I've heard it said that if you're too busy for God, you're too busy. The same is true that if you're too busy for your spouse, you're too busy. The same is true that if you're too busy for your children, you're too busy. See, it's ironic that the things that we would most want really come from pursuing God, not from running away from God. Because God is the provider of the things that we really want. And then there's the response in verse 13. Now therefore, O God, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. It's the only response that really we should give as we seek to know God. As we spend time with God, worshiping Him. As we spend time in prayer with God. That our ultimate response is one of thanksgiving for all that He has done for us. And praise for all that He is. And His desire to be a Father to us. Now I'd like to reread uh, this prayer. Putting together uh, these terms that we have talked about. Praise be to you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the immensity and the royal authority and the absolute beauty and the ultimate victory over sin. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the right of sovereignty, O Lord, and you alone exalt yourself as ruler over all. Both material wealth and godly character come from you, and you reign over all. And in your hand is the ability to produce and the authority to exercise power. And it lies in your hand to cause one to mature and to encourage everyone at a time of need. Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Now this is just a glimpse of what God is like. And yet there are some other attributes that I'd like for us to look at on Father's Day, which we might be able to see in our own lives. These are called communicable attributes, and it's just what the term suggests. 
that by becoming in close contact with God, He can infect our lives. Just as when you come in contact with someone who has a communicable disease, the infectious germ that they have may become a part of your life, and you may pick up that same disease. So as we draw close to God, His communicable attributes can become a part of our very life. The first one this morning is love. For us as fathers, I believe it's essential that we have that quality of love that God has. The love that says, I love you regardless of who you are, where you've been, what you've done. I love you. And God shows that love towards us and his desire as the God of the universe to know each of us individually, to live with each of us individually. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ is the assurance that we have of God's love, the demonstration that we have of God's love. Now, this being Father's Day, I think of my children. And I don't think I would sacrifice my children for anyone or anything. Yet God did this because it was in line with his ultimate purpose and objective. But, you know, the odd thing is is that we as fathers sometimes do sacrifice our children for things that are far less important, far less significant. We sacrifice them for some of the things that we want in life. Money and pleasure, recreation, other relationships. And there's a story of a young man who stood at the bar of the court of justice to be sentenced for forgery. The judge had known him from a child, for his father had been a famous legal light, and his work on the law of trusts was the most exhaustive work on the subject in existence. Do you remember your father? asked the judge sternly. That father whom you have disgraced? The prisoner answered, I remember him perfectly. When I went to him for advice or companionship, he looked up from his book on the law of trusts and said, Run away, boy. I'm busy. My father finished his book, and here I am. The great lawyer had neglected his own trust with awful results. You see, sometimes we sacrifice our children for money, for position, for power, for relationships with other people. Not that any of those things are bad, because they aren't. But when they squeeze out the relationships with our children, then they're wrong. Then we have become a neglectful father or a neglectful parent. So let's seek to pursue the love that God has for us. The second aspect is God's forgiving spirit. Turn with me, if you will, to uh, Psalms 103. I'd like to read through verses 6 to 14. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses. He acts his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, 
so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. You see, God deals with us knowing who we are, that we are but dust, but we are weak and frail. And he has a forgiving spirit. And I, as a parent, need to keep that in mind with my own children, that they are weak, that they are frail. And that forgiveness, my forgiveness, is the ointment which will soothe and heal the mistakes in life that can create deep scabs, hard scabs of guilt and criticism in their personality. My forgiveness is important to them. The third aspect that I'd like for us to consider is that of being a provider, a giver. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it shall be opened. Or what is there among you? What man is there among you when his son shall ask him for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he shall ask for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? You see, God has given us many good gifts, many great gifts, more than what we need. And the modeling of my parents is that they were givers to me, giving me much more than I needed, and providing for the needs that I have. And perhaps one of the gifts that we could give or provide for our children is the gift of time. Perhaps the greatest gift. A successful attorney once said, The greatest gift I ever received was a gift I got one Christmas when my dad gave me a small box. Inside was a note saying, Son, this year I will give you 365 hours, an hour every day after dinner. It's yours. We'll talk about what you want to talk about. We'll go where you want to go. We'll play what you want to play. My dad not only kept his promise, he said, but every year he renewed it, and it's the greatest gift I ever had in my life. I am the result of his time. How true that is. We are the result of the time that our parents put into our lives. That time is so important. The last aspect to consider, I think, is one of encouragement. That we as fathers need to be the source of encouragement for our children. God was always involved in encouraging the nation of Israel through the prophets and the kings. And I remember especially when he had to encourage Elijah, the prophet, who was uh, down and distressed. Ahab, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel were on his case. And God came along and picked him up and brought him forth to continue in ministry. Jesus came along after his death and resurrection to pick up the disciples, especially Peter, because they felt abandoned, forgotten. And then Barnabas, the best human model of encouragement, his name means the son of encouragement, he came alongside the Apostle Paul 
who was then just the disciple Saul. And it was through his loving hand that he helped Paul become that great apostle. Proverbs uh, 25.11 says, Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in a right circumstance. So we have the ability to speak the words in the right circumstance. We have the ability to make a child's spirit bold or to break a child's spirit. We have the ability to encourage vision or to crumple dreams. All in the words that we as fathers speak. Tremendous ability. And yet this morning, it's not important that we know all these attributes about God. What's important is that we know the attribute giver. The one who gives us these things. To be the kind of fathers and mothers and parents that we can be. That God wants us to be. You see, as we spend time with God, he will infect us with himself, with his character. He will make us into the kind of fathers he wants us to be. He will supply the words that we need to have at the right time. He'll make it possible for us to be compassionate, for us to be upright, for us to be bold with our children. Because he is, as his name Yahweh suggests, he is whatever we will need for him to be to accomplish what he wants to accomplish through us. And that's the great thing about our God, the Father. And so this morning, think about who he is. Not so much in his greatness, but as your heavenly Father. And then think about how he can help you to become a better father this morning. In closing, I'd like to read a prayer of General Douglas MacArthur. He had one child who was a son. Father, build me a child who will be strong enough to know when he is weak and brave enough to face himself when he is afraid, one who will be proud and unbending in honest defeat, and humble and gentle in victory. Build me a child whose wishes will not take the place of deeds, a child who will know you and seek to know himself. Build me a child whose heart will be clear, whose goal will be high, a child who will master himself before he seeks to master others, who will reach into the future yet never forget the past. And after all these things, add enough of a sense of humor so that he may not always be serious, but never, so that he may always be serious, but never take himself too seriously. Give him humility so that he may always remember the simplicity of true greatness, the open mind of true wisdom and the meekness of true strength. Then I, his father, will dare to whisper, I have not lived in vain. I have given you this morning some principles out of a book called The Effective Father in the Bulletin. I encourage you to read those. I encourage you to buy the book by Gordon MacDonald because I think it's one of the best books out on fathering. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love, for your word that instructs us that you supply the power, the strength, all that we need to be parents, fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, neighbors. It comes from you by your goodness, simply because you love us. Amen.